Genesis chapter 4. Our final thoughts this morning about the events that took place between Cain and Abel. Last time we considered the reality of what Cain did to Abel, understanding Cain's actions to have begun in the heart, a heart that was full of rebellion and resentment, well before they manifested themselves in the action which took place, which was to murder his brother. And then we also took time to understand within the scope of that lesson the true reason that Cain slew Abel was not that Cain himself was, had done unrighteousness before God, but rather that his brother had done righteousness. That when a man does right, his actions serve, in a sense, as a de facto testimony of what is right before the eyes of those who are doing wrong. And a man will take that one of a few ways. When a man sees someone else do right and his heart is convicted about his own actions because of the righteousness or the rightness of another's actions, well, he can callously ignore that, which happens in societies where the religious are either protected or have institutional power. It's a rare occurrence in history, but when that happens, uh, those who do wrong, they feel that conviction, and they can at best really ignore that conviction. But the more likely responses, as we look throughout history, the response that is in the heart of man, the response that we see Cain here is that he... Uh, either, re- well, and we don't see this with Cain, but the man either repents of his wrongdoing when he sees another doing what is right and his heart is convicted, and there's a testimony of that, that the, the nature of his own actions as being wrong. He can either repent of that wrongdoing, or far more likely, as we understand history and society and human nature, he grows resentful at the righteous man because the righteous man's actions make him feel the weight of his sin. And so he blames the righteous man for how he feels rather than confronting the shame of his own actions, which is why all throughout the scriptures we find these warnings that Jesus gives us, that Peter gives us about the reality of persecution. Why is it that Jesus gave so many warnings about persecution? Well, that's what we considered last week. The reason why is because when man is in a place of sin, the testimony of the righteous convicts him, and that works his anger, his ire, not against his own sinful nature, but against the person who is testifying of the truth. And 1 John 3, verse 12 tells us that this is indeed why Cain killed Abel, because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And I want to take us down one more road of consideration this morning toward the end of this narrative before we leave it and before we move past verses 1 through 8. And this is to take us back to the whole reason why Cain was angry in the first place. So in the text, in Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says this, And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So this whole thing started when Cain brought his offering to the Lord, And the Lord did not have respect unto that offering. He rejected it. Now, we're not going to talk today about Cain's response at all. We've already talked about Cain's response. I want to instead think a little bit more about the nature of this rejection by God of Cain's offering. We said a couple of messages ago in the first message on this passage that what Cain and Abel were doing here is the first record that we have in the Bible of what we call worship where men bring something that is theirs 
and they willingly give it to the Lord as a show of submission and as a show of love. And we can make several observations from how this whole situation transpired. First, we can learn that man is naturally drawn in his heart to worshiping something. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in our time together. But second, we can learn that when it comes to the true and living God, the heart with which we worship and the manner in which we worship matter. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said that the time would come when they that worship God would worship him in spirit and in truth. That it is important to God both that the heart be right with him and that the manner of worship be right in his eyes. And we'll consider these in turn. First, we consider that humans are naturally drawn to worship. There's a man named Blaise Pascal in the 17th century. He was a French mathematician and a philosopher. In the 1670s, he wrote a book. And it was a book defending Christianity called Pensées, right? Or thoughts, contemplations. And many people quote Blaise Pascal as being the one who coined the idea that there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man. He never actually said that, um, but he did say something from which we get that principle. And this is what he said. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness, something we called last Sunday night joy, right? A true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those things that are. Though none can help him, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, only by God himself. From the very first generation of fallen man, man has known that there is something missing that the things on this earth simply cannot fill. And this is fascinating because we are quite literally in generation two, the first generation of men born to man, right? The second generation of mankind himself. And yet already we are seeing a disparity that called them unto worship. From the very first generation of fallen man, the heart of man has longed for that missing thing and has sought for it. And typically, man has sought for this outside of himself, right? Throughout various times in history, throughout various contexts in history, our time being one of these, however, he then seeks to convince himself that what he is missing can actually be found in himself. And this is what we find with the kind of narcissistic society that we live in, that man says, all I need is more self, more love, more me to be happy. And of course, this is being ta taken to a extreme end today, but probably not for the first time in history. If we read uh, the books that uh, have been passed down to us from generation to generation. So man can turn inwards and look for that fulfillment in himself, or he can turn outwards and look for that fulfillment in something else, whether that be the true and living God, or whether that be trees, or whether that be idols, or whether that be whatever it might be. But one way or another, man is drawn to fill that void somehow. Man seeks unto that missing thing, and when he thinks he has found that thing to fill the void, when he believes he has located that thing which is meant to fill that abyss, he is naturally predisposed to reflect unto that person or that thing or that idea, submission and reverence necessary to satisfy that longing and to show a measure of fealty by which to induce that thing to fill the void. 
And that submission, that act of reverence, is what we call worship. Manifest by the giving of ourselves to the object of worship in some way, shape, or form. Giving of our time, the giving of our abilities, the giving of our resources. We give these things to the things that we worship as a means by which to seek unto that thing to fill the void that is missing in our lives, that infinite abyss of which Pascal spoke. And as far as we understand, this would be why Cain and Abel were giving to the Lord. An outward show of reverence and submission to God, a show of worship. Or at least it was in the case of Abel. With Cain, we see something different. Cain gave to God. He took of the fruit of the ground, which he had tilled, and he offered it to the Lord. But God did not accept that offering. And today we're going to contemplate what happened there. Why did that happen? Why is it that God did not accept that offering? And we said two weeks ago in that part one of that sermon, uh, of this passage, excuse me, that we have clarity from the text that God is not rejecting Cain here. We know from the scriptures that there's no respective persons with God, that God did not just decide, I like Abel better than Cain, so I'm going to take Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. We know that this was not the case, not only in that the Bible says there's no respecter of persons, but God specifically said, if you do well, you will be accepted, right? That was God's response in Galatians, Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So God assures Cain that this had nothing to do with him per se. That if he does well, he will be accepted. This isn't about Cain being rejected. This is about Cain's worship being rejected. And this becomes a warning, not only to Cain, but to us as well. Helping us understand that worship, our worship matters and that there is a correct as well as an incorrect way to worship. God has every right to be worshipped. I mean, it's right that we would worship him. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our savior. But he also has the right to dictate the terms of that worship. So that if a man wants to worship God, he is compelled to worship God in the way that God wants to be worshipped. And God is under no obligation to accept our offerings unto him simply because we have offered them. If it's not what he's asked for, or if our heart, though we are offering something, is still far from him. And this brings us to a major question in the text. Why then did God reject Cain's offering? And there are two possibilities here, both of which are worthy of our consideration. Possibility number one is that Cain's offering was rejected not because the offering itself was unacceptable, but because the heart with which Cain brought it was unacceptable. His heart was far from God. Possibility number two, which we'll come to second, of course, is that Cain's offering was rejected because the substance of his offering, though his heart may have genuinely desired to worship God, the substance of the offering itself was outside of what God had asked for. These are the two possibilities. Let's consider them in turn, because we see both of these ideas as quite viable 
in the precedent of Scripture. Within the scope of the biblical narrative, the idea that a man brings an offering that God has asked for, but his heart is far from God, is actually a major theme and a huge problem in the history of Israel. The nation was given a written record of what it was that God wanted in worship. God wanted sacrifices. God wanted offerings. God wanted them in a certain place. God wanted them done in a certain way. And Israel, at various times within their history, did a fairly good job of conforming to the outward expectations of that worship. They brought the animals. They brought it at the right time. They brought it in the right way. They did all of those things. But while they did what they were supposed to be doing on the outside, their hearts were far from God. So Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 17, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Well, if Israel's reading that, they'd say, um, God, you, you've required that, right? That, that's, that's, that's what you wrote in the book. Why are you saying you, you hate these offerings when these offerings are what you've asked for? Verse 13, bring no more vain oblations. Vain meaning empty. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, those would be their feasts, right? The calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Why? He says, because your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And this is a theme that we will see time and time again. If we were to walk through it all, it would take us too long. But you can see this in Deuteronomy. You can see this in Isaiah. You can see it in Jeremiah. You can see it in Micah. You can see it in Hosea. You can see it in so many different places in the scriptures where we find this idea where God says, you're doing what I said you're supposed to do, but your heart is far from me. You're coming, you're worshiping, you're killing the animal, you're putting it on the altar, you're, you're burning the incense, and then you go out and you oppress the fatherless and the widows. And then you go out and your hands are full of blood and injustice and unrighteousness. And he says, I don't want your show of devotion if I don't have your heart. And that's the scenario. Israel was bringing their sacrifices to the Lord, the blood of bullocks and of lambs and of he goats. But when they weren't making sacrifices and offerings unto the Lord, they were persisting in unrelenting wickedness and injustice and oppression. They had all of the proper outward trappings of submission to God, but none of their outward expressions of worship were in any way reflective of what was actually happening in their hearts. Their worship was form without function. Worship is intended to be an outward manifestation of what is inside of us. This is a term that we call integrity, when what we're doing is reflective of who we are, right? When who we are is what we do, when who we are is what we say, when we're not pretending. That's integrity. It's an important part of humanity. It's an important part, especially of manhood, men. 
Worship is intended to be an outward manifestation of what's happening inside. When we sang those songs, come Christian, join to sing for the beauty of the earth, wonderful words of life, uh, a passion for thee. As we sang those songs, that was supposed to be an outward manifestation of what was happening, what is happening in your heart. It was supposed to be a reflection of how you actually think about God, how you have oriented yourself to this world in relation to him. And outside of that, there is a lack of integrity in our worship. What we are doing externally as we worship is, in essence, intended to be the overflow of of the disposition of our hearts. When our worship is rightly related in this way, worship is proper. Form follows function, and we express to God his worth in a manner that he has prescribed because we desire to give honor to his name, and as the scriptures would tell it, that becomes a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord, that that worship as it comes before him is acceptable to him. But when form does not follow function, when in our hearts we are full of wickedness while going through the motions externally, rest assured, God has no obligation to accept that worship from you. And rest assured, he doesn't. He is not pleased. There is no worship truly happening except perhaps worship at the God, the altar of self. As much as God has a manner in which he requires be worshipped, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, he just as much desires that we bring said offerings under proper pretenses, not false pretenses. Thinking that we can manipulate God through our actions into accepting us, even though our hearts are far from him, when our intentions are not toward him. As I said, this principle is not just found in Isaiah. It's found throughout the scriptures. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, mentioned it in Sunday school this morning. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. See, the sacrifice is pleasing to the Lord when it is an obedient sacrifice, when the heart is aligned. What about Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24? I hate, God says, I despise your feast days. I will not smell your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters and, uh, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Let judgment, let righteousness, let these things be preeminent. And again, Hosea 6, 6 through 8, Micah 6, 6, speak of these as well. Those are some other very uh, well-known passages as it relates to, to this. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God, right? But we also find this as one of the foremost controversies in Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, don't we? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. By the way there, he was quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. So this is drawn from the Old Testament. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, in Matthew 23, 23. For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Now, our second point is going to draw to what Jesus says next. These ought ye to have done. Jesus is not telling them that they should not be tithing of mint and anise and cumin. 
Jesus is not telling them that they should not be doing sacrifices, but they should not be doing it while leaving the weightier matters undone. Not to have left the others undone. Do that which is weighty. Do that which is, is, is true in the integrity of your heart. Justice, mercy, walking humbly with your God. Well, and then the wonderful thing about it is then the worship follows. A person who brings the offering that God says he wants, but brings it in hypocrisy and guile, out of integrity, not with a heart of submission and love to the Lord. This is the danger. This is the problem. This is the warning. When you come with a selfish motive, attempting to manipulate or cajole the blessing of God without in any way positioning your heart to submit to the Lord, rather seeking worship as a sort of tax that you pay on your actions, right? And this is what religion tends to do. Religion tends to turn worship into an action tax. That I do something wrong, now what do I do in worship to atone for what I've done wrong? How do I get right in good standing with whatever my God is that I'm worshiping? And what do I have to do to get back into his good graces? Completely outside of the doctrine of grace. Completely outside of the way God actually functions but rather seeking to, like the pagans with their gods, like what we all think of when we think of simple, vain religion, paying off God by giving him what he wants so that he won't judge me or so that he'll give me what I want. But worship of God is not an exchange in that way. God is worthy of it. And so my heart needs to be aligned. This kind of worship is false worship. And false worship, of course, will not be accepted by God. And so this is the first possible reason why it was that on that day that Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord, Cain's offering was rejected. Not because the offering itself was wrong, but because Cain brought it in hypocrisy, in an attempt to manipulate God's favor to appease his parents or to keep up with his brother. Well, my brother is doing it and my parents are praising my brother. Good job, Abel. You really love the Lord and you're really doing what's right. And so Cain says, well, I can do that too. And so he works in himself the way to kind of try to bring himself into favor with his parents in the same way that we don't know exactly what may have been in his heart, but it's very possible that that was happening. Because anything other than a true expression of love, reverence, and submission to God, which is what worship is, Anything apart from that, heart, is not worship of God. It's false worship. So that's possibility number one. Now, the other possibility is that Cain's heart was generally engaged in worship. He was legitimate and, and, and being um, genuine in his engagement in worship he wanted God to regard him and he wanted to regard God and he wanted that relationship but the manner of his worship was consciously wrong. And of course, it could be both. Could be, and, and we would believe that if the manner was wrong, somewhere the heart has something going on. But in this scenario, God rejected the worship not because the heart with which Cain brought it, but because the content was not what God asked for. And the reason why we might think this to be the case is because of another principle that's well established in Scripture and it's exhibited in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews 9, verse 22, Paul writes, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. 
and without shedding of blood is no remission. All throughout the Old Testament, we find that God desired and indeed required a blood sacrifice for atonement. Now, certainly there were a number of other sacrifices that took place within the Old Testament that did not include the shedding of blood. There were meal sacrifices, right? There were grain sacrifices. There were sacrifices of things other than just meat. And so we cannot say inherently, well, Cain did not bring the blood of an animal, therefore Cain's sacrifice was inherently rejected. We do not know what the offering was about. Uh, of course, at this time, the law was not in place. We don't have the label for this. Was it a trespass offering? Was it a, 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 a love offering? You know, what, what, what kind of an offering was it? We don't know. They didn't even have the categories at this point. So we don't have true insight into that. But if it was a sin or a trespass offering of sorts, well, then blood needed to be shed. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And to not shed blood when the call was to shed blood would not just be a disregard of God's expectation, but as it relates to the fundamental opportunities that were rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it would be a marring of the picture of what Jesus Christ would come to do eventually, wouldn't it? It would actually be a perversion of the very picture that God was intending, the shedding of blood, so that if God allowed Cain to move down that path unaltered, where he says, oh, I guess the shedding of blood doesn't really matter, then that picture is marred as it relates to human, the humanity's expectation, and that would undermine Jesus coming as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So this is a possibility as well, that the problem that God had with Cain's offering was not necessarily at its root that Cain was trying to manipulate God or cajole God into something, but that what Cain sought to bring was what he wanted to give God rather than what God had asked for. And this too is false worship. And we do see this as working right toward that idea of the God of self, that I believe that I can wrap God around my desires rather than wrapping myself around God's desires. Uh, it's not uncommon for me when I pray uh, either uh, in Sunday mornings or whatever it might be that uh, I pray and I ask God that he would help us, that we would allow the scriptures to judge us, not we to judge the scriptures. And this is a tendency in the heart of man, right? That I open the Bible and I say, what does this mean to me? Well, in one sense, understandable, but fundamentally, it really doesn't matter what the Bible means to me. What matters is what God meant when he gave it. What does God mean in his word, right? That's the real question. What did God mean to say? What is God saying? Not what is God saying to me in that sense. What did God say? And then I can say, okay, this is what God said. Now, what does that mean for me, right? Not to me. What does that mean for me. What do I do about it? Okay, that's good. That's valid. But when we get down to this idea of, okay, I now am the arbiter of truth. I get to decide what God's word says and what God's word doesn't say. I get to wrap God's word around me rather than wrap myself around God's word. And then we make a God in our own image. And that's the Romans 1 problem, right? That having seen God, they glorify him not as God, but became vain in their own imaginations, and their foolish heart is darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools, and then they take the creatures that are around them, and they make them their gods. Why? Because they can get a handle on that God, because they've created it. And if they've created him, then they can understand him, and they can manipulate him, and they can handle him. And our God is a God that sits in the heavens. We cannot manipulate him. We cannot even fully understand him. And we need to be okay with that. 
And so we need to obey him, right? We need to obey him. And this can happen, and this can happen without us necessarily invoking our own will in it. It's it's always back there somewhere, the God of self, but not necessarily consciously. A person can, in all good intention, bring something to God other than what God has asked for. And when we do this, God is under no obligation to accept it. We find this precedent throughout the scriptures as well. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. He'd been up there for better than a month, and the people were determined that he must have been killed or he must have died. So they came to Aaron and they demanded that that he make them gods to worship. And Aaron fashions a golden calf, if you recall. And we read this in Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 through 6. The Bible says, And he received them at their hand. That would be all of their gold and stuff. He told them to break off their earrings and such and to give them to him. And he received them at their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool. After he had made it a molten calf, they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. And they rose up early in the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. So here Aaron fashions a golden calf. And then, and notice this, the end of verse 5. Aaron says, he makes a proclamation and he says... Tomorrow is a feast unto whom? Unto the Lord. Now, in our King James Bibles, one of the blessings is that they, they translated the concept of the name of Jehovah consistently. Anytime you see a name in your King James Bibles that's in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, or capital G, capital O, capital D, the name behind that is the name Jehovah. So they had been introduced to this God whose name was Jehovah. And recall that God had introduced himself as this God, I am that I am, on Mount, on, on Mount Horeb when, when uh, Moses was standing before the burning bush. And so Moses has now introduced them to this God. And God came to them in a cloud of fire and he gave them the Ten Commandments. That was in Exodus 20, so 12 chapters ago. He gave them the Ten Commandments verbally. And then after he verbally gave them the Ten Commandments, then Moses went up onto the Mount to receive them in tablet form. And they were down with the mountain burning, and they were down in, at, at the base of this mountain. Now, the nation was not, it would seem, in their mind and heart, rejecting the idea that Jehovah had brought them out of Egypt. They were not, in their mind and their heart, it would seem, rejecting this God who had introduced himself to them, but rather... What they did is they fell back into their old habits, into what they were comfortable with, into what they knew from worshiping in Egypt and such. They fell back into a manner of worship that made sense to them rather than the manner of worship that God had proclaimed, right? God had said on the mount, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God had specifically said to them, no graven image. And yet they said, well, we don't know what happened to Moses. That mountain's still burning, but Moses hasn't come down. It's been a really long time. Aaron, make us gods. This is what we know. And we we want to worship Jehovah. We want to appease him. Maybe he's angry. Maybe that's why the fire's still there. We want that fire to go away. That thing scares us. So let's make these 
Let's make a calf. Let's make an idol. Let's worship him as Jehovah. Let's bring to him our burnt offerings. Let's do the things that we know to do, the things that are in line with what we have always understood worship to be. And we would say, well, that's just rebellion, right? I mean, God had literally in his own voice told them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, not to do this. They were well aware that they should not do this. Well, yes. But it is not them saying, forget this God, is it? This is them forgetting God in that they forgot what he had said or they disregarded what he said. But they were disregarding God in the name of God. An attempt to worship God in a way that they knew how, that they were comfortable with, wholly apart from what God had deemed acceptable. They were seeking to wrap God around what they understood, around what they wanted, around what they were comfortable with. And this is also a tendency in the heart of men, isn't it? Even among the well-meaning, even those that truly love the Lord, and yet they fall into a manner of worship that is consistent with what they know, though perhaps inconsistent with what God has said he wants. And then they say, well, if my heart is in it, then why wouldn't God accept it? If I'm doing it for God, then shouldn't God accept it? Well, maybe he will, but he's certainly not under any obligation to. And the testimony of Scripture is that if you're outside of what God has asked for, he probably won't accept it because that's what he's asked for. And it's in the book. And we're accountable for that. Inherent in the concept of showing someone their worth is regarding what they request. If I tell my wife I'm trying to lose weight, and then that evening I come home and my wife has made my favorite dessert. Well, she may think that she is loving me by making my favorite dessert, and maybe two days ago it would have been. But if she knows now that I am trying to lose weight, though she perceives this as an act of love, and though it is something that I actually do like, what does it actually reflect to me? Disregard. Or subversion, one or the other, right? Because she knows what I actually want, and she is working actively against it, even though she's doing it in a manner that I would like, in a sense. Christian, we can commit our whole life to something in the name of God. But if that something is something that God does not want, then it's false worship. And God is under no obligation to accept it simply because you brought it with all good intentions. So this is a possibility as well as it relates to Cain. That what God wanted on that day for the purpose unto which Cain and Abel were bringing their offerings was a blood sacrifice. And Cain said, here's the thing. My brother is the, till, uh, is, is the keeper of the sheep. I'm the tiller of the ground. I don't want to bring the best of what my brother has raised to God. I want to bring the best of what I've got to God. Sounds pretty good to me. But not if it's not what God wanted. Right? So he says, I'm going to bring the best of what I have to offer. Sure, maybe it's not what God asked for, but it's honest and true. And if God wants worship, then he'll have to accept it on my terms. This is what I've got to give him. And that is simply not how worship works, is it? I don't worship God on my terms. I worship God on his terms. So that's a possibility as well. Which one of those? Well, first, second, both? We don't know. Maybe something else? Uh, you all know I've been wrong before. I could certainly be wrong today. 
But these are principles that we find in the scripture that are consistent with what we find here as it relates to God rejecting Cain's sacrifice. So let's bring all of these things together with three thoughts as we close our time to think about this morning. And we're just going to go down the line of what we've already talked about and kind of coalesce it into something a little clearer. So first point, all men worship something. God created humans to worship. As Pascal said, there's this craving in man an abyss, which is the manifestation of a heart which knows that it is missing something, that, there, that we are called to be something more, that there's a joy that, reside, that ought to reside in my heart that is not there, that there's a presence that ought to reside in my heart that is not there, and that is, of course, that separation that Genesis calls death, the wages of sin. Our hearts, the human heart knows it's supposed to have a life, have life, not just a life, it's supposed to have life and virtue. But it's experiencing sin and death. And this craving compels man's heart to seek satisfaction by worshiping those things which might lead to that satisfaction. And so the world is filled with promises of this satisfaction, isn't it? Satisfaction in things. If only I have that thing. If only I can get that next thing. If only I can pursue that thing and attain that thing. But things will never bring satisfaction. Satisfaction in identity. If only you will accept me as I am. Accept me as I present myself. If only I will be able to uh, completely be accepted in the way I label myself. The way I see myself. If only uh, I can be affirmed by more people. If only uh, I can uh, have everyone around me telling me my choices are right. If only I can never have any resistance. If only I can have a perpetual safe space, if you will. Then I will be happy. It doesn't make you happy. Satisfaction in substance. Satisfaction in association. If only I can be with that person. If only I can have this association. If only I can be a part of that group. And then you don't find it. Like Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, as I said in John chapter 4, I already talked about they that worship shall worship in spirit and in truth. You know what else Jesus said to the Samaritan woman on that day? She said, he said to her, you come to this well and you draw every day. Because you draw that water and you go back to the city and then you drink that water, but then you get thirsty again. And because you're thirsty again, you have to come back and you have to draw again. And then you go back and you drink that water and you get thirsty again. So you have to come back. And he says, but the well that I will give you will be a well springing up inside of you unto eternal life. Jesus said, I don't just want to give you a glass of water. I want to give you the well. True worship of Jesus can offer a spring of living water in the heart of man, satisfying our craving once and for all. But men will keep trying. They will continue to bow at the altar of thing after thing, ending up in the altar of self, the altar of claim after claim, the altar of imagination after imagination, of, of false claim after false claim, of lie after lie, seeking life among the bones of the dead. Or they will come to the true life of all. But make no mistake, all men will worship something. If you never come to that true life of all today, if you have throughout your life been worshiping at the altar of all sorts of things, looking for that thing that would satisfy, but you've never come to the finished work of Jesus Christ, 
Going all the way back to Genesis, we find this idea that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Adam and Eve ate of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in that moment they died. They were spiritually separated from God. The thing that is between us and God is our sin. But God sent Jesus, and the scriptures tell us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you've never done that, would you come to that well of living water, that spring bubbling up inside you unto eternal life, that thing that satisfies fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us, and thou shalt be saved. If you've never done that today, make today the day. If you're still confused, you want a little more information, come see me after the service. We'll talk about it together. Because all men worship something. Now, in our last two points, we make things more personal to believers. You're one who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You've decided that you're going to worship the God of the Bible. These lessons of Cain are important lessons that help us orient ourselves properly to what that worship looks like. So point number two, true worship is an expression of the heart, not just the sacrifice of the body. Worship is not just an action, Christian. As we saw in the text of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, acts of compliance, but without the heart of love, is false worship. It's abhorrent to God. But not just to God. It's actually kind of abhorrent to everyone. Now, I give an illustration. I've given this before. Those of you that are familiar, bear with me on this one. But if I uh, give my wife flowers, and I give her these flowers, and she's excited, and she loves these flowers, and uh, she is blessed by these flowers... Now, she may truly like flowers, but the flowers themselves are not the deeper essence of why it is my wife is so happy when I bring her flowers, is it? The reason why my wife is so happy when I bring her flowers is because it shows that I was thinking of her, that I was driving home, or that I was out and about, or that that I went and I made a special trip specifically to get those for her, and that I am on her mind. And that matters to her. So imagine that I buy her these flowers, and she's very happy. And I say, wow, that really worked. And then a couple weeks later, I buy her more flowers, just thinking of you, my darling. And oh, she's so happy. And that really worked. And I say, well, this is, flowers equals happy wife. I like this. So I say, so I call up the flower company. I say, you know what? My wife really likes it when I give her flowers. But I don't really want to have to think about that. So every month, first of the month, charge my card. Bring some flowers to her door. And so my wife gets those flowers. And, oh, honey, thank you so much. The lovely flowers. And I say, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Next month comes and he says, wow, first of the month again. And they just show up at the door. And, hey, honey, thank you. And I say, thank you for what? The flowers. Oh, yeah, yeah, the flowers. Yes, of course, my love. I love you. And then all of a sudden, she realizes that I've automated the process. And now that I've automated the process, she starts to look at those flowers. And she says, you know what? Those flowers, yeah, she likes the smell of the flowers. But... Maybe they're not as special to her as they once were. Why? Because I'm not thinking about her anymore. And then it may even come to the point where when those flowers show up on the first of the month, she looks and she resents those flowers. Those stupid flowers. All they tell me is that my husband is trying to buy my favor without actually thinking of me. Right? 
It's not just a God thing. A heart of love. That's what worship is about. Just like a heart of love is what gifting is about. It's actually for this reason that we at Legacy Baptist Church don't automate our giving. We don't have an a, a automatic withdrawal every month. And I'm not saying that churches that do, it's not, not necessarily wrong or bad or whatnot, but our determination is that there's a part of the idea of every month thinking about God, determining to pull out my checkbook or to go to the bank and pull out some money that actually is a process that has value as it relates to worship. So that if it's just, empty, if it's just leaving my bank account, it sure makes life a lot easier for the church. If it's just leaving your bank account and coming into ours and it's consistent and all that, and that's all well and good. But what if God wants you to give a little more next month? But you've automated the process. You're not even thinking about that. It's not even on your mind. What if God has you to redivert some funds somewhere else? Not even on your mind. Automated process. And there's something about that idea of us detaching our will from worship that doesn't quite lend itself to worship, does it? The Bible expresses this idea. And it's something that we should take to heart. Does God have certain things he wants our followers to do? Yes, of course. And we've stated the Bible gives us a call to do many things, right? We are called to give. We are called to assemble. We are called to pray. We're called to have compassion. We are called to evangelize the lost. Yes, we are called to do these things. These are things that God expects. But can you come to church, give money, read your Bible, recite a prayer, and knock on doors and tell other people about Jesus while your heart is filled with pride and self? In theory, yeah, you could, couldn't you? You could be going through all those motions to earn favor with man or to manipulate or cajole God into giving you what you desire without ever once submitting yourself to God's claim on you. And God will look at such and say, I despise your sacrifices and your feast days. They are an abomination to me. And so the call then recognizing that worship is an expression of the heart, is to make sure that our heart is aligned in worship. That worship is intended to be something that is meant to be a litmus test. That as I come to worship, is my heart engaged in said worship? It's, in, it's there to show me what's happening inside so that I can make sure that I'm right. Because our heart in worship matters. And it's possible for our actions to comply with the expression of religion while our hearts are devoid of the expressions of relationship. And God forbid that this should be. But of course, the opposite can also be true, and that's our final point. The manner of our worship is important to God. It is also possible that we can have a heart which seeks expression unto God but that we are misguided into expressing it in a manner which is contrary to God's will. I already gave you the example of my wife making my favorite dessert two days after I said I wanted to lose weight. That's sort of an idea. And this is not uncommon. It's not uncommon in our lives. It's not uncommon in human nature. And it's not uncommon in the church today. Because we live in an age where sincerity and authenticity are conflated with truth. So that if someone is sincere in their belief... This means that they are beyond criticism. If they truly believe it, 
then I can't speak against it or criticize it because they're genuine, they're sincere. It must be right if it's authentic, is the idea. Their authenticity, the fact that they truly believe something to be true, proves their accuracy. It's true to them. So it's not just fine, but it's right and it's good. And of course, that's a lie, isn't it? Someone can be entirely sincere, completely authentic, and be absolutely wrong. It doesn't matter how convinced I am that 2 plus 2 is 5. It doesn't matter if I have built my entire life around the reality that 2 plus 2 equals 5. It doesn't. And no matter how sincere I am, and no matter how authentically I believe it, I am sincerely wrong. And as it relates to our worship, we can be absolutely sincere in our desire to show God his worth through a set of actions or a method of worship. But if those actions or methods stand in contradiction to God's character and God's will, then regardless of how sincere I am, regardless of how authentic I am, God cannot accept my actions, my methods of worship. In Israel's day, that was the golden calf. They made the golden calf. They built the altar to the golden calf. And they said, tomorrow is a feast unto Jehovah God. But it wasn't. No matter how much they believed it, no matter how much they wanted it, no matter how much it made sense to them because that was their experience in former worship, it didn't matter. It was not a feast to Jehovah because it wasn't what he asked for. And in the name of the Lord God who brought us out of Egypt, we are going to feast and uh, offer sacrifices to the golden calf. And while the feast was in the name of God, and there's no direct reason to doubt their sincerity, it was an abomination to the Lord. And the question is, what about us? What about our personal lives? What about our church? This might take any number of forms. We talk about various things, the various reasons why we do what we do here. There's a reason why it is we choose the music we choose. There's a reason why it is that, uh, uh, that, that we um, choose the, the method of giving that we choose. There's a reason why it is that we uh, have a, a, um, a general expectation for those that stand up behind this pulpit as it relates to ministry and what we wear from behind the pulpit. So we can take things and we can repurpose them from pagan worship and we can put God's name on those things, but that doesn't actually make it the worship of God. I can monetize the devotion of believers like the money changers in Jesus' day whose business was not inherently wrong, even played an important role in a secular economy, but who brought their transactions into the temple of God to pray upon the devotion of others to use the worship of God as a pretense for economic benefit. It might manifest in a flippant attitude toward worship where rather than giving God my first and my best, as the scriptures give examples of giving, bringing the first fruits to the Lord, right? Giving him our first, bringing the unblemished lamb, giving him our best. These are not things that we have to do literally today. I do not have to bring an unblemished lamb to church every week. But there is a principle of worship that undergirds it, of bringing my first fruits, of bringing my best, that does reflect something about the character of what God has asked for, about not bringing pagan ideas into the assembly as it relates to worship. These are all things that we find manifested in Scripture so that if I do those things, if I bring paganism and I wrap God around a bunch of pagan ideas in worship, 
So that if I bring my second best, if I bring a flippant offering unto the Lord, if I give God my leftovers, or if there's nothing left for him at all, this is fundamentally contrary to what the scriptures reflect as it relates to the nature of worship itself. All of this helping us understand that it is just as possible to go through the motions of worship with a heart that is wholly disengaged and so worship falsely. And it is just as possible that I could genuinely seek unto the Lord in a manner of speaking, but do so in a manner which is outside of what he wants and so not of interest to him at all. And so also worship falsely. And on the day when Cain gave this offering, the Bible says God rejected it. We honestly do not know directly why. Could be either of the two options I gave you, like I said, or it could be neither. Maybe it was both. But beyond just seeing the first manifestations of worship in the Bible, we also see the first evidences of man's tendency to twist worship, to pervert worship in his heart for his own ends. And we see that this God who made heaven and earth, who reached out in grace to Adam and Eve, who clothed them to cover their shame, will be found of those who seek him. But we have to seek him. Which means we're looking for him, for his way, with all of our hearts. That's what God said to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 4.29. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thine heart and with all thy soul, God is found of those who seek him with all their heart. And once we have found him, once we have learned of him, it is our privilege to worship him on his terms. So how are we doing today? Are we engaged in a manner of false worship? Are you going through the motions, but your heart is far from him? Conversely, is your heart genuine and authentic, but the manner in which you've chosen to worship him is outside of the scope of that which God has asked for? True worship reaches out to God both in intent and in manner, both in form and in function. And the promise is the same promise that God gave to Cain. If ye do well, will ye not be accepted? Right? If you seek him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. So by God's grace, let us align with those principles of God's word as it relates to worship. Coming to him on his terms and not our own. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.